if you have a Bible, please flip it to Philippians chapter 4. We are quickly closing in uh, on the end of this book. Um, today we'll be looking at Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Uh, and as I, as I was preparing this, this week, I thought about the question, have you, ever, have you ever tricked yourself into believing that what you think doesn't matter? I did. Uh, Spanish 3 in high school, one of the worst academic experiences of my career. Uh, just, just not a good time. Uh, our poor teacher was not in control of the class whatsoever. Uh, the kids were brutal and awful and nasty. Uh, tons of people who shouldn't have made it past Spanish 2 but got passed anyways. Uh, with no interest in learning the language of Spanish, uh, walking over the teacher daily. The teacher would lash out in anger. It was a frustrating classroom experience. Uh, and there I was in the middle of it. And believe it or not, you wouldn't believe this knowing me now, um, but I was pretty quiet and reserved in high school. I didn't, I didn't go out of my shell very often. I didn't like to engage with those around me very much. Um, and, and so if you looked at my actions in Spanish 3 in high school, they would tell you one story about the class. My actions were this. I, I got an A in the class. The teacher liked me. I was respectful and kind. I did almost all of my homework and turned it mostly in on time. Uh, I was kind to the people around me. Uh, I was probably one of the least problematic students in the class. Uh, and so if you look at, at what I did, if I got a report card just for my behavior in class, uh, you would say, all right, that went pretty well. Decent class, got an A, got along with the teacher and the students, sounds good. But if you looked into my brain for one class period, for one 90-minute class period, if you got to see my thoughts, an entirely different story would be painted. See, while I was doing the right things, my mind was wild with anger and frustration and arrogance and impatience. I spent every class, all 90 minutes of every single class, hating every kid around me because of how mean and rude and loud they were, judging the teacher for not being able to control them or do a better job teaching, frustrated at the lack of learning and what was going on, and just overall puffing myself up for how good of a job I was doing as a student. If you look internally at my thoughts, I was miserable. I look back on that as one of the worst classes in high school for a number of reasons. But if you looked outside, I looked fine. And I think that what that made me think is, is that how we think matters. Sometimes it's not only our actions that carry weight and importance, but also our thoughts, especially when it comes to, to our joy and our peace. I had no joy and definitely no peace in this class because my thought life in the class was awful, even though I was doing all the right things. And after writing a, a letter full of instruction and command on how to live, how to treat one another, how to speak, how to love, Paul now, at the end, is going to zero in on how to think. Our text today tells us that God cares about the thought life of his children. What, what do we think about? What, what, do, you, what, what do you think about, uh, about yourself? What do you think about other believers? What do you think about God when life doesn't go well? Where does your mind go during the day? What are your thoughts doing? God cares about these things, and he doesn't only care, but today's text is going to show us that he promises joyous results and benefits to his people when they learn to take these thoughts captive. So in our text, Paul is going to zero in on three specific areas of thought that we all need to subdue uh, and the benefits that can come from doing this well. And this is what our outline today is going to look like. Uh, the outline is going to see point one, thinking rightly about others. We're going to look at verses two through five. What does it look like to think rightly about others? 
Point two is going to be, what does it look like to think rightly about God? Uh, it's going to be verses six and seven. What, what does it look like to have a healthy thought capacity about God? Uh, and then verses seven and, or eight and nine, what does it look like to dwell on the right things? But before we look at these things, let's approach God's word uh, in humility and seek to hear it for what it says through faith. So look with me now at Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Hear now the word of the Lord. I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word this morning, uh, we are humbled by the simple complexity of your word, that, that it is not, uh, not too much for us to understand, but it can be so much for us to believe and to do. Uh, and we pray that you would enable us through the power of your spirit that dwells in us uh, to hear what you have for us in the word this morning, uh, but, but not just to hear it, but to be doers, uh, to be changed internally, that, that not just our hearts and our actions, but our thoughts would begin to be changed into how you would have us think as a result of seeing this text would you give us all ears and hearts to listen? Would you give me a voice to speak clearly and boldly what you have in the text today? Uh, and will we love you more as a result of what we see in Christ's name? Amen. So Paul, ever the pastor, concerned about the thought life of the Philippians, begins with a real problem. He doesn't go into some abstract question or illustration. Uh, he, he begins with an actual pastoral problem in the church of Philippi. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me again. He says, I entreat Eudia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. On the surface, what's happening here is Paul is addressing two oddly named women about an unnamed controversy and bringing in some guy that he calls his helper and a guy named Clement, who unless you are a church history buff, you've never heard of. Uh, and it's just like, okay, this is oddly unspecific, not much here. But we need to look past uh, just the surface level of what Paul's saying. And we look at how Paul speaks to the people he's addressing here. First, look at what Paul says to these women. He doesn't just say, stop fighting. Whatever you're doing, stop it. He doesn't take a side either. He doesn't say like, yeah, Yudia was right, Syntyche, you're wrong, everyone be on Yudia's side. He, he actually says, agree in the Lord. Those of you who have children will either love or hate this illustration. I'm not sure you can tell me afterwards. But think about when little kids fight over toys. It can be a mess. It can be nasty. There can be tears and snot and, and, and 
thrown fists, uh, and it's all over some little piece of plastic, and they want it. And, and if you are, say you're, you know, this is the image I had in my mind, if you're washing dishes, and you see your kids across the house fighting over one toy, and you just say, hey, stop fighting, odds are they're not going to stop fighting. That, is, that has almost never worked in the history of parenting, to just from across the house yell, stop fighting and get along, it has no effect. But imagine instead uh, that the mother steps in between the fighting children and says, children, you guys need to agree, dad's on the way home. When I was a kid, that was, that was it. That was game over. I was like, dad does not tolerate this kind of action. <laughs> That's not good. If dad's on the way home, this is terrifying. I'd be like, yeah, you have the toy. I'm good. I'm going home. Uh, but, but imagine it's more than that. So there's fear, right? When, when, when you say dad's on the way home, there's a little bit of fear as the kid, like, oh boy, he's going to get me. But, there's, but what, if, what if the mother stepped in between the fighting children and said, dad's on the way home, and he's bringing you both a new toy? Both of you are getting your own awesome toy, way cooler than this one. All of a sudden, the kids are like, whoa, really? They start like frothing at the mouth, excited, Christmas morning style. And, and, and this, this is kind of what Paul is doing here by charging Yudi and Siddiqui to agree in the Lord. He's reminding these women that their relationship is not a one-on-one affair. Rather than appealing to logic or taking a side, Paul reminds these women that, that their dad is on the way home. Jesus is in the midst of their conflict. Their fight is not a one-on-one fight because they are both children of the same father. They're both servants of the same Lord. When they relate to one another... Jesus is intrinsically involved. This is informative to us because when we fight and we dispute and when we think poorly of other people in the church, uh, do we remember that God is between us? Do we remember that the bond that holds together Christians is Christ himself? Do we remember that the very same spirit dwells in us as does all other believers? We can't, we can't take our conflicts with the church and with people in the church into a dark corner and duke it out one-on-one. Everything that we do as believers is mediated, seen, and in the presence of Christ the Lord. But it's more, Paul doesn't just say, agree in the Lord. He also places their conflict in its proper context. In verse, excuse me, in verse 3, Paul brings in all of these other people. You know, Yudia and Syntyche are fighting, and he's like, and Clement, and my faithful companion, and all those other people. And you're like, Paul, why are you dragging in? Just ta- Usually when we fight, we don't want everybody involved. We're like, yeah, it's between me and this guy. It's personal. Uh, but Paul says, no, come on. Yudia, Syntyche, Clement, faithful companion, everybody else. And he drags all their names in. Uh, but what he's doing is he's reminding the church in Philippi, uh, and these two women in particular, that when members of the body fight, the whole body suffers. Division between believers is not an individual thing. When the hands and feet are in conflict, the whole body is damaged. But Paul adds even another piece of information to the pile. He he brings all these people into the picture, so now he's been talking about the women and his faithful companion uh, and Clement and everybody else, and he, he labels them under one term. He calls them all those whose names are in the book of life. Why call them that? Well, call Paul's in that because Paul cares about how we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. By saying that these people's names are in the book of life, Paul is appealing to these women to remember who each other are. The book of life, uh, historically in the Bible, is the list of those whom Jesus died for. 
It's the list of God's true people. It's the list that the Lamb holds in his hand in the book of Revelation as he comes to judge the world. Inside the book of life are the names of those whom Jesus' blood has covered, and those who are not covered are not found in the book. It is a list of God's true eternal children, and that is what Paul wants these women to think about as they fight with each other. He doesn't want them to think about the circumstances of the argument. He doesn't want them to think about who's taking what side. He doesn't even address specifically why they're arguing. He says, no, agree in the Lord and look around you and look at those whose names are in the book of life. Do you think that way about your fellow brothers and sisters? When you talk to Christians in your life, do you think of them as those Christ specifically died for? Or do you think of them as the sum total of the sins they've committed against you? What Yudia and Syntyche needed is exactly what we need when we strive against other believers. We need to think of each other as children of God bought by Christ's blood, whose names are side by side in the Lamb's book of life. If the first thought that I had when I looked at a struggling brother was like, that guy's name is right next to mine in the book of life because of the exact same reason. I have my, li- my name in that book because of the blood of Christ and no other reason, and his name is there too for the exact same reason. It becomes really difficult to, to hurl insults, to hold hatred and anger, to hold grudge against brothers and sisters because, because we see who they are. If those were my first thoughts, then my attitudes towards these brothers would be of love, not of judgment and frustration. The problems and conflicts and disagreements that we inevitably will have with other Christians are only going to be handled well and in a unifying way if we keep in mind that the person that we are fighting with has their name in the Lamb's Book of Life. This week, as you interact with the believers in your life, strive to think this way. Strive to agree in the Lord. To view your brothers and sisters in Christ as those whom God has marked out for grace since before time. And when you find yourself thinking ill of other Christians, stop yourself, pray to God for control over your thoughts, and then remind yourself of these truths. Christ is a part of our relationships with the body, and he has written our names together in his book. That's really informative and, and highly practical and effective and helpful, but it's, not, it's never with Paul just to do these things. Paul is a gracious and loving pastor, and he loves the Philippians, and he wants them to see why they should do these things. Uh, And and he speaks of the results in verses uh, 4 and 5, the results of what it looks like when we think this way about other believers. Verses 4 and 5 read, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. It always comes back to joy for Paul in this book. If we can truly view others this way, if we can really think well of one another because of Christ, then the first result that Paul sees is joy. Paul saw the squabbling of Judea and Syntyche, and he longed for them to reconcile, not just because there was division, and division is uncomfortable and painful, but because they were sapping themselves and the body around them of the joy of unity. When we fight, we rob ourselves of joy. But there's another vitally important result Uh, of the body thinking of each other well. And that is that our reasonableness would be known to the world. That word reasonableness that Paul used actually carries with it the context of gentleness, kindness, understanding, love, compassion. Uh, It's not a cold, calculated, logical, check-your-boxes kind of reasonableness. 
It is a, like, that is a reasonable guy. That is a kind, loving, the kind of guy that I can get along with. And, and, and Paul strings this right after his exhortation to these women because he wants his readers to know that when, we, when there is right thinking amongst believers, the world notices. He adds on afterwards, the Lord is near. Do you hear the missional impact of these sentences? Many times people will complain about the church and say, man, that church is so internally focused, they don't have any goal or sight for missions, and that can certainly be true for specific churches. But Paul here says, man, if you want the world to notice, you need to start with unity amongst yourselves. You need to think well of brothers and sisters because the world will notice. Christ is present with us and his return is imminent. The Lord is near, Paul says. Therefore, we need to be serious about how our witness to the world is. And being serious about our witness starts in the mind. How do we think about our brothers and sisters? How do we govern our minds concerning the church? Do you want to have missional impact? Yes, go out, proclaim, spread the gospel, preach. But begin in your mind thinking rightly about the church. That's Paul's first category of where we need to adjust our thinking, what it has to have right thinking about other Christians. And when we do it, Paul says that it'll produce joy in the Lord and missional impact for the watching world. But what comes next can feel jarring and a little bit insensitive to us uh, if we don't look at it rightly. Look at verses 6 and 7. This is a very familiar text for most people. Verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Many of us are very familiar with this text, and I'd venture to say many of us are afraid or, or at odds with this text. As soon as we read, do not be anxious about anything, we tend to, to pause. Our minds check out. That's not possible. We live in the age of anxiety. Everybody has anxiety. How can we possibly be anxious for nothing? We can barely decide what we want to eat for lunch without anxious feelings in our hearts and minds. How on earth are we supposed to completely cut out anxiety, Paul? Well, I think step one is to define what Paul means by anxiety. That's a big word, and it means a lot to us today. Uh, but it is important to know what Paul's dealing with. The word that Paul uses here carries the literal meaning of being pulled apart in multiple directions. It's the image of, of having one object that is pulled in, in a plethora of directions by different forces. And Paul says, Paul says that to be burdened by a multitude of desires and worries, to be pulled in all these different directions by cares, that's what Paul's speaking of. Does it sound familiar to you? Do you wake up in the morning with so much on your mind and heart that you feel torn in, in many directions? Does what people think of you demand your attention? Does how you will continue to, to earn the money you need to provide for your family, does that pull you in a different direction? We, we are constantly at war within ourselves, and we feel helplessly caught between the many forces and desires that pull on us, and that's what Paul's speaking of when he says anxiety. Does that, does that make sense to you? Do you understand? I've, I've, 
I've asked God thousands of times, God, remove my anxiety. This just feels, and, and it hasn't happened. How many of us have, have prayed daily that our worries and our cares and these forces would stop and that our anxiety would go away and it doesn't happen? This is why we check out when we read this. We can agree that anxiety is bad and it would be great if we could just not be anxious, but it seems like Paul is being naive. Like we've tried prayer, Paul. No matter how many times we pray, we still seem to be anxious. We still wake up in the morning and we still feel the pull of hundreds of desires and cares that demand our attention. Prayer doesn't seem to work. When I was 18, I broke out in a pretty severe rash all along my left arm. Uh, it started off on my wrist and it grew all the way up to my shoulder. Uh, and it was an odd rash. It didn't just kind of burn with the rash pain. It started to, to feel like I fell asleep on my arm. A deep nerve pain took over my whole left arm. It was the middle of baseball season. I ended up sitting out for two weeks because I could not move my arm uh, because it felt like you took that staticky, falling asleep on your arm feeling and cranked it up to 11. I didn't sleep much for two weeks. I went to the doctor quickly. I was like, this is very odd and not standard. Uh, and I'd done some, some very uh, intelligent online medical research. You know how we do it. We type in our symptoms. Like, that's definitely it. And I was like, I have shingles. I have the shingles virus. I'm a healthy 18-year-old. I have the shingles virus. Uh, and I'd never had chicken pox. Uh, and so I walked into the doctor's office. I said, doctor, uh, I, I have shingles. Please help. Uh, and the doctor took one look at me and said, son, you've never had chicken pox. I said, I'm aware, but I have shingles. And he said, you don't have shingles. That's just a rash. I'm going to give you this rash cream. It'll be okay. I said, I'm telling you, I've had rashes before. This is awful. I haven't slept in five days. Nerve pain this is not a rash. And he said, you haven't had chicken pox. It's a rash. Here's some rash cream. We'll see you in two weeks. So about a week and a half of not sleeping later, with no aid from the rash cream, I walked back into the doctor's office. The pain has started to fade on its own. My body's kicked it on its own. Uh, and, and, and I show it to him, and he goes, well, I guess you had shingles. Uh, best we can figure out is that I caught shingles from the chickenpox vaccine. Uh, but he looked at what I had, and he said, that definitely seems like a full case of shingles. Uh, and, and I was pretty livid because I told the doctor I had shingles. And this is the one case when you actually accurately diagnose yourself online. So I'm sure the doctor was normally very right. But the problem was the doctor was not looking at the illness. He was looking at the symptom. He, he looked at the outside symptom, and he looked at my age and my overall health and said, like, this guy doesn't have shingles. It's just not the case. But he didn't actually do the blood test. Say, I don't know how you catch shingles, but I'm not a doctor. You can ask Peter. Uh, but he didn't take tests. He just looked at the symptom and, and prescribed. And this is actually why Paul treats this issue of anxiety this way. Hang with me here. We see Paul say, be anxious for nothing and pray about it. And we're like, oh, that's just not good, Paul. That doesn't, that doesn't check the box for me. But, but Paul knows that anxiety is not the illness. Anxiety is the symptom. Anxiety is not the problem itself. It is the outworking of the problem in, in, our, in our senses. The illness, Paul says, is not anxiety, but it's how we think about God. At its core, Paul is going to put forward, and the way he tells us to pray, anxiety is a distrust of God. It is a misthinking of God. God has promised to work all things for the good of his people. Yet when we listen to our hearts and we fear what man thinks of us, we're failing to believe that about God. Surely God is not working that person's opinion of me for good. 
God has promised to provide for us everything that we need for life and godliness. And when we are anxious and pulled this way and that way by our worries about finances and money, we do not trust that God is going to provide all that we need for life and godliness. Anxiety is something we all struggle with, and it's very understandable, but at its root, it is rooted in not thinking properly about God. Our problem is not that we have anxiety, but it's that we think God is too small. And this is where Paul's prayer advice comes into, into play. Paul's not suggesting that we simply pray, God, please take my anxiety away. Paul is suggesting that we pray in a way that informs how we think about God. Paul doesn't prescribe asking for deliverance, which is fine and biblical to do, but he prescribes giving thanks. The act of giving thanks retunes our mind. When we get on our knees and pray thanksgiving to God in the midst of our worries and our cares and our anxieties, what we are doing is we are forcibly admitting that God is the giver of all things, of all circumstances, of all gifts, of all trials. When we give thanks to God in the midst of trial, we, we change our minds. Do you pray prayers of thanksgiving when you're anxious? I don't naturally. That's not where I go first, but that's where Paul wants us to go, to offer up prayers of thanksgiving in the midst of anxiety and worry. This is extremely hard to do, but when we do, we begin to actually fight the illness, not the symptom. We're not just swatting away at the symptom and the pains of anxiety, which can control our brains, but we start to fix the heart problem that can produce these worries in our hearts by thinking of God as the generous provider. We stop putting rash cream over our anxiety and we start facing the illness. But Paul doesn't just say to give thanks. He also says that we're to let our requests be made known to God. We're supposed to ask God for provision when we're anxious. And the language here for provision is not simply provide a way out for me, please. That is acceptable. That's in the Psalms all the time. David prays for deliverance. There's a context for that. But what Paul prescribes here isn't, Lord, get me out of the problem, but Lord, give me what I need. Provide for me what I really need. When we humble ourselves and obediently petition the Father for the things that we need, we are again admitting that he is in charge. When we think rightly about God, when we believe that he is big and he is in control of everything, it prompts us to pray expectantly for what we need. We can look to the past, we can look to our past lives, we can look to the whole of the Bible's Old Testament history to see that God is a provider and that no saint has not received exactly what they need from the Lord. These prayers, these prayers of thanksgiving and supplication, they're tools that we need to tune our minds to think rightly about God. Do you feel crushed under the weight of anxiety? Are you pulled in so many directions by your anxious heart that you don't know what to do? Paul says, stop, pray, give thanks to the Lord, and then tell him what you truly need and trust that he knows what you need and will give it to you. Trust that God is working in your life right now and then humbly present your needs to him. The result of these prayers is beautiful. Paul says in the next verse, he says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Obviously, anxieties and worries are a huge problem because our hearts and minds need guarding from them. They need protection. That word for guard is the same word that was used uh, for the guards stationed around cities in the Roman Empire. These giant 
garrisons that would protect entire cities. Paul says we need that around our hearts and minds because anxiety and worry will rip us apart. And the best way that Paul knows to guard our hearts from anxiety is to remember who our God is. So before we move on, I wanted to share a list of some of the key truths about God, some of the key things that we can think rightly about God that I find helpful when I'm pulled to and fro by my anxieties and my worries. This is just a list uh, of some of my favorite truths about God that help me to remember that he is big and in charge. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Even in our planning, in our striving, in our seeking to be good stewards of what we have, our God is the one who establishes our steps. The steps we take are ordained and planned and purposed for good. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. This one helps me when I, when I look at the world and I think, yeah, God's in charge of the big stuff. He's in charge of my salvation. He's in charge of all this, but he doesn't care about this small thing. He doesn't care about you know, how I'm feeling right now. He doesn't care about my, my bodily ailment. But no, this verse says God establishes what we would consider chance, the roll of the dice, the casting of the lot. Our God is over everything. Luke 12, 7 says, Why, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not. Are you not more valuable than many sparrows to the Lord? The God who is so big that he's in charge of everything down to the, the largest event in the, in the universe to the randomest chance action, he actually holds you as valuable. He knows every hair on your head, and he values you above the rest of creation if you're his child. He knows us so intimately that Jesus says that he knows every hair. That's the God that we serve. And then to tie them all together, this idea that John's preached on recently, Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This same God has promised not to work some things, not to work the big things and the important things, but to work all things for the good of his people and for his own glory. And so when we look at the little things in life and the anxieties and the insecurities and the worries and the doubts and the fears, we can preach these truths to ourselves. Paul knows to move us from anxiety into peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding, uh, that what we need to do is have a bigger view of God. The worries and cares of this world are hard to fight, our, hard, our thoughts are hard to control, but God promises us that as we learn to think rightly about him, as we think correctly about God, as our view of God gets bigger and more glorious and more merciful, then our hearts and minds are guarded more and more from the anxieties and the worries and the fears of the world. Do you need peace this Christmas? Is peace something that you lack? Paul says the answer is to think rightly about God. So we need to think rightly about others. And we need to think rightly about God, and the results of these things are going to be joy and mission and peace. But Paul has one more thing he wants to tell us about our thought life, uh, and it's all-encompassing and overwhelming. Look with me at, at verses 8 and 9. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace 
will be with you. Paul's addressed our thoughts towards believers. He's addressed our thoughts towards God. But now he has in mind our free time, the thoughts between, not the arguments we have, not the depths of anxiety and worry, but just, just what we dwell on, just what happens in our minds between. How do we think all of the time? Paul says that we're to think on things that are true, that are honorable, that are just, that are pure, that are lovely, that are commendable and praiseworthy. And do you feel the weight of that list? Do you match your thoughts against that list and think, man, that's just not, that's just not how my brain works. I, I do not spend my time pondering the true, the honorable, the just, the pure, the lovely, the commendable, and the praiseworthy. Paul means this as encouragement, but it can feel like a crushing weight. Rather than fixating our minds on things that are true and honorable and pure and just and lovely and commendable and praiseworthy, our minds, because of sin, are drawn to things that are temporary, to things that are vile, to things that are violent, to things that are seductive, to things that are false, and to things that are worthless. There's a reason why they say in the news business, if it bleeds, it leads. We want to read about the bad. We want to read about the vile, and in the worst parts of ourselves, we're just fascinated by evil. Our brains gravitate to evil. And even if we manage to fight away the evil, right? I'm not going to think about those things. I'm not going to dwell on those things. We often accomplish this by numbing ourselves and by clearing our mind of anything useful. Like, well, I don't want to worry about that. I'm going to submerge myself in the newest Netflix show. And that's where my free mind is going to go. A vile mind is not what God wants for his people, but neither is an empty mind. Now, we need to fill our minds, Paul says, with pure, honorable, and praiseworthy things. That sounds really good, but I was asking myself just about all week, well, what are those things? What can meet that list? What can be pure and lovely and honorable and holy and praiseworthy, commendable? And just about everything that I could think of would fail one or multiple of those adjectives at some point. I could not come up with a list of things that matched that, except for Christ. Our God is the only conceivable thing that can meet each of these requirements without fail every day. Jesus Christ is the ultimate truth. He is true. Romans 11.36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. Reality and truth flow from the person of Christ and are found most clearly and concisely in Jesus Christ. Honorable. The death and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of worthless sinners is the most honorable act in history. We are only able to fight this battle for right thinking because of the honorable sacrifice of Christ. He's honorable. Romans 3.26 tells us that Jesus is just. He is the just and the justifier. He, he is the perfect executor of justice, and he is the one who takes justice on himself for those who couldn't do it. He's not only perfectly just, but he absorbs the punishment we deserve. Jesus is just. He's also pure. The reason Jesus' sacrifice is, is capable of taking on our sin is because Jesus is the perfect picture of purity. He lived a sinless life perfectly. It feels like an understatement to say that Jesus is commendable, but it's true. And any reading of the book of Revelation makes it clear to us that Christ the King is truly praiseworthy. That when he returns, it'll be to the sound of trumpets and every knee bowing and every tongue praising and confessing. 
What does Paul mean when he tells us to think on this list of things? We are to have our minds filled with Christ. Christ must be preeminent in our thoughts. If your mind is filled with other things, it won't do. Christ longs for his people's minds to be full of him. And that's just not what we see. Is your mind filled with, the, with ponderings of the latest TV show? Is your mind filled with worry about your next paycheck? Is your mind fixated on global events and the drama of human sin unfolding around us? Or are you so in tune with reality, so enthralled with the word that you can watch TV, you can work your job, you can relate to the world around you and see its events unfolding and still see Christ in all of these things? Is Christ preeminent in your thoughts? Is he beautiful in everything? A professor of mine once said in his closing address to this class before they graduated, he said, my prayer for you is that you'd be so steeped in the word and the scriptures that everything would be Christian. That everywhere you look, you see truths of Christ. That as you watch TV, you're reminded of who Christ is, whether through the good or through the bad. Whenever you play a sport, you're reminded of the joy of who our God is. That, that, that we'd be so enthralled with true reality of the word and of Christ that we'd see it everywhere and we'd love it everywhere. Christ is infinitely worthy of our constant thoughts, but, but do we think about him that way? Maybe our minds are too full of other things. This text is not here. I've heard it taught this way, and I truly do not believe that this text is here to tell us, don't watch TV shows and movies. Don't enjoy hobbies. Don't do sports. Just sit at home and pray. I don't believe that's what this text is saying. But if our brains are so caught up in TV, if they're so caught up in, in our, next, our, our favorite college team's next matchup, if they're so caught up on us missing out on things, if they're so caught up in our financial lives that, that we fail to think of Christ as valuable, we fail to fill our minds with Christ, then take a step back. Take a step back and reorient your mind to true reality, to what really holds weight. Christ is immeasurably better than anything else we could think on, so think of him regularly. Maybe your mind's not full of Christ, because, not because you filled it with other things, but because you simply don't spend time around Christ. Maybe you don't read his word, you don't pray, you don't meditate on truths, and, and, and that is a simple but difficult thing to fix. You set aside time, read Pray, meditate, sit with Christ is more important than your morning workout. It's more important than breakfast. It, it, it will help the way you think about God. We feed our minds these truths of God and it grows into the fruit that Paul's listed. But maybe you read your Bible plenty. Maybe you don't fill your mind with, with, with use, useless things. Maybe you, you do your quiet time, but, but maybe you keep it to yourself. Maybe you bottle up religion and Christ into a 35-minute period in the morning. And that's what, that's what Jesus is to you, is he is your morning cup of coffee. 35 minutes of prayer and devotion in the morning, and then you go out and you live your life and you're concerned with the world and its anxieties and its pulls. And then you come back the next day and the next morning you wake up and you have 30 minutes of Jesus. If, if we're not living these truths, if we're not speaking to them, to those who, who, who agree with them, if we're not proclaiming the gospel to non-believers... If we're not letting this knowledge of Christ well up inside of us, then we are not having minds that are filled with Christ. 
Don't, don't confine Jesus to your quiet time in the morning. Thinking on these things, Paul says, is an all-day event. But as always, like the first two points, Paul doesn't just give us a laundry list of what to do. He provides us with motivation and a loving reason to do it. Verse 9 says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Earlier, in the last point, when he talks about anxiety and, and, and praying, thanksgiving, and supplication, he says, and the peace of God will be with you. But he's up to the ante here. He says that when we learn to fill our minds with Christ, when we, when we govern our thoughts in a glorifying way, the God of peace is with us. If we can think on these things, Paul says, then we'll become more and more attuned to the presence of the God of peace in our lives. The more we train our minds to dwell on Christ, the pure, the holy, the lovely, the praiseworthy one, the more keenly aware of the presence of the God of peace we will become. Do you want to feel close to God? Do you want to experience the God of peace? He's there. If you're, in his, if you're one of his children, he is with you. But do you want to capitalize on feeling his, his presence? Think rightly. Fill your mind with Christ. And those who do are promised his presence. And where the king is present, there is peace. So looking back on all of that, it seems like we need a full mental overhaul. It feels like a lot. We need to think rightly of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to think rightly of God, and we need to have minds that are filled to the brim with Christ. And that's a lot of mental work. In fact, to most of us, myself included, it feels like too much. But remember who Paul is writing to. Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters whose names are written in the book of life. Don't get this confused this morning. This is not a scary command of Christians, think this way or face the consequences. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, brothers, sisters, those who belong to Christ, think this way and experience joy. Experience peace. Experience unity. Experience mission. Experience calm. As children of the king, we have absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain by fighting to win the battle for our thoughts. It is the very death and resurrection of Jesus on behalf of sinners that prompts Paul in Romans 12 too, our assurance of pardon, to say, be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God cares about how we think and he sent his son to die to remove our sin so that we could then think rightly about him and experience joy. So Christian, how do you think? What takes up your mind? How do you think about others? How do you think about God in the midst of anxiety? And is your mind filled with Christ? I confess mine is not, but I want it to be. And Paul says it can be. So my prayer today is that through the work of the Spirit, by the power of Jesus and to the glory of God the Father, we would each learn to think rightly about others, to think rightly about God in the midst of anxiety, have minds filled with Christ, and that the result 
would be a profound experience of peace that surpasses all of our understandings. Let's pray. Lord, this is, this is a large task. It feels like such a weight, but would you remind us that this is not a weight on your people? This is a, this is a gentle reminder from a loving God of what is available to his children, that because of Christ's death on our behalf, that we are able to have our minds renewed by the power of the Spirit, that we can think correctly about each other, that we can think correctly about you, that we can think correctly about Christ, and we can be filled with the peace that surpasses understanding. This is hard. We will fail at this regularly, and I pray that you would give us endurance and love to continue even when we don't do this well tomorrow. But I, do give, I give you praise for the fact that you and your love didn't just save us to a painful existence of endurance, but you've saved us to sober-mindedness, that we would think well. You care about how we think, God. We confess the ways in which we fail to think well, and we ask your power of your spirit and your grace to help us as we aid, as we seek to think correctly. Would you be with us this week as we go out, as we relate to the world, as we relate to others, and as we think on you? We thank you for Jesus, whose blood makes possible this glorious struggle in Christ's name. Amen.